Welcome to Superintendent Radio Network. I'm Guy Cipriano. We're continuing our Tartan Talk series by having a conversation with David Druzinski. David is the only golf course architect based in Idaho. Yeah, that's right. David runs his business in one of the most scenic states in the country. So we're going to talk to him about what it's like to be a golf course architect in a part of a country where there aren't many people doing the same thing. And we're also going to be talking about his background. His father, George Druzinski, was a longtime golf course superintendent who was very influential in David's career. But before we get going with David, we'd like to thank Better Billy Bunker for supporting this podcast. Better Billy Bunker is not only a big supporter of the American Society of Golf Course Architects, Better Billy Bunker supports a number of industry efforts, including the work of golf course superintendents. So we're glad to have them on board, and we're glad that David was able to join us for episode number 40 of Tartan Talks. Well, David, thanks for joining us. It's awesome to have you on the, the podcast and the first thing I want to ask you is you're based in Idaho. What type of views do you get to stare at every day? Right. I'm very fortunate. Actually, so I'm in the Boise area, this little suburb called Eagle. And um, we're kind of at the base of the beginning of the mountains. I can be skiing in the winter at about 45 to 50 minutes from the house. But I come down to the house, I'm in elevation 4,600, and you're out of the snow. So... I, I am lucky. Right now it's fall, so we've got the fall colors going on. And, and um, we're high desert in, in this part of Idaho, all the entire southern. People don't know the, the, the different climates and, and, and such of Idaho. And it's kind of like Arizona, where people don't realize the entire top half of the state down there is 7,000 feet high in, in, the, in the Douglas fir forest. We're kind of the same thing here. It's desert, high desert that stems out of the eastern side of Washington and Oregon until it hits the mountains here. Um, all throughout the southern part of Idaho, all the way across to, um, you know, the east side of the state. So it's it's dry, it's nice, it's uh, clear, we get a little snow and a little bit of precipitation, but not a lot, so great grass growing weather for sure. You're the only ASGCA member based in Idaho. What is it like operating a golf course architecture firm in that, that part of the country? What are some of the challenges and what are some of the opportunities? Yeah, it's... Uh, Sometimes it feels like you're a little bit on an island out here. You know, like coming from the Scottsdale area before, I opened my firm in, in Scottsdale in 96 and moved up here in 2006. And you know, it was a little bit of a mecca down there for the West Coast in terms of the golf industry. So coming up here, um, you, feel, you, can, you can feel a little removed from the golf industry, but sometimes that's probably a good thing. Um, but yeah, you're right. There's not a lot of competition. You've got David McClay Kidd up here and, you know, when I first moved up here, of course, John Harbottle was over in Seattle. Um, he has since passed away, unfortunately. But um, it, it's, a, it's a wonderful area. Um, it's, it's great for golf. It's a wonderful climate. It's drier than, than you would think. Um, you know, they grow a lot of grass up in the Oregon, Washington area. So, you know, it's conducive to what we might want to do as architects with, with grass types and, and, and stuff. And, and it's, it's a wonderful place to, to raise a family. It's growing. Unfortunately, everybody's found the, the, all the positives of a place like Boise, and, and, and I, uh, the Boise area is growing significantly right now. But we enjoy it both personally and professionally um, from a golf standpoint. We have a nice group of, of other professionals here in the golf industry. I've got a, a, a really good irrigation consultant that's based in Boise. Terry Buchan is based here now. He's, he moved up here. Uh, we've got numerous um, folks that are distributors 
that has some of their uh, West Coast guys here in Boise. So we have a little bit of group uh, of guys we can get together and talk about what's going on in the industry. Okay, for the moment, Idaho is a much cheaper place to live than California, so I can understand why people want to make that move. But what convinced someone that was living in Scottsdale to, to make the move to, to Boise when you did? Yeah. Well, growing up in Scottsdale, both my wife and I grew up there. And we, we saw it grow significantly. In fact, you know, we're, we're looking at, at Boise right now and saying, you know, it's very similar. Um, it was a, a smaller city that, you know, grew really fast. And, and we were like, you know, it's time to maybe find some other place to raise a family. We had young kids at the time. So I had been working up in the Idaho area, uh, working with a, a country club here in town, doing a project on the other side of the state. Um, was doing looking at something with Hale Orwin. Uh, for a little while in uh, down south near Twin Falls, and we kind of I kind of fell in love with the place and brought the wife up, and she she thought it was fantastic. So that's pretty much why we made the move. We just wanted to kind of displace ourselves and find a place we could slow down a little bit and maybe take advantage of all the great things uh, that this place had to offer outside, mostly. What's the golf scene like in Idaho? How would you describe it? And it's just not Idaho. You're near Wyoming and Montana are up there. How would you describe the the golf scene in those three mountainous states? Yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting, right? Because it's you've got a lot of local, smaller, nicer, simpler, less expensive golf courses, especially in the cities. A lot of the small towns uh, throughout Idaho and, and the neighboring states have some nice golf courses. It's very inexpensive. Uh, it's a good golfer's market, people that just want to enjoy the game and, and play without having to spend a lot of money. Quite different than when you know, I was down in Phoenix and Scottsdale. Um, but it also has a lot of great destinational locations. You've got Coeur d'Alene. You have all the places uh, over near Jackson, um, Wyoming. Uh, of course, you know, over into the Montana area that you hear a lot of really high-end second, third, fourth club-type locations where there's been some fantastic golf courses built developments, Coeur d'Alene, uh, the resort there. So you've got kind of two things going on. You've got a lot of high-end stuff, and you've got a lot of stuff that the, the standard golfer can take advantage of for, for nice green fees and enjoy the game. What is it like for you prospecting for work? Do you primarily just work in Idaho and Montana and Wyoming, or do you, do you still go to Arizona? What is it like for you trying to prospect and run a golf course architecture business in the area that you're in? No, yeah, I have to, I have to go beyond the borders of the state. Um, I'm working with quite a few of the courses and clubs here in the area. It makes sense since I'm the local guy, but Hey, you know, I, I kept a lot of my contacts in Arizona, so I continued some work down there uh, for a while. And I'm, I'm currently doing a couple things down in California, both Southern and Northern California, uh, stretched over into the Washington area a little bit. So, yeah, I, I, the good thing about Boise, it's actually a good location to get to all those places. I think throughout the West Coast, most of us architects, you know, that's kind of the case. You've got the bigger cities um, up and down the coast, and you've got Phoenix, um, into Salt Lake City, Boise. So we're used to traveling. I'm jumping on the airplane and doing these six-hour, which would be six-hour drives and turning those into one-hour flights and, and hitting all our prospective clients and, and customers throughout the West Coast. And it's just continued from here. It's been pretty easy to continue that um, lifestyle. What's the life cycle like for a golf course in the, the high desert of a place like Idaho? Uh, a lot of them are coming up on their you know, 30-year anniversaries, 25th-year anniversary. What's the life cycle like for a mountainous golf course? It's pretty similar. You know, in the desert, where they're maintaining 365 days a year, plus or minus going through the rigors of things like uh, 
overseeding. You know, it, it has a lot of wear and tear on a golf course. Life cycles tend to be pretty short, high temperatures, whatever. Uh, same in California when the golf course is open all the time. You know, things shut down up here for the most part. Uh, not every course does. Down here in the Boise area, the golf courses can pretty much stay open year-round, minus a few weeks here and there. Um, but, you know, the weather, just like back east, uh, the winter weather has its uh, the things, the tolls that it takes on aspects of the golf course. So it's it's probably pretty similar. We didn't, you know, in, until recently, the, the irrigation systems were not as sophisticated as you saw elsewhere. So there's a big um, dynamic shift in that regard that anything new going in is probably a little higher bar than it had been in the past. So I, I think that the Northwest was kind of isolated. It's interesting. When I worked for Bob Cup, I went out to Portland to help John Fode establish the office uh, out there when we were doing Pumpkin Ridge. And at the time, there really wasn't a lot of new stuff that had happened in the Northwest. And since then, a lot of new things have come in. You're right. All those things are now 25, 30 years old. So it's going to be interesting to see what takes place with a lot of those facilities. A lot of them are doing quite well. Some have already done some things to keep up with the times and, and to recycle themselves, I guess you could say. Um, but a lot maybe have not. So maybe there will be a lot of stuff on the horizon in that regard. But I think it's pretty typical to, to any other location uh, throughout the country where yeah, those life cycles, which I've been I've been really working hard with um, uh, on with, with courses and clubs and helping them understand that you know, golf courses are an asset like any other thing, a building or, or a car or something like that, and things wear out and you have to replace these things. And uh, so a, a lot of the work probably, I would say, has been geared more towards that kind of um, approach. David, what approach do you take towards educating a membership about the life cycle? And is it tough to tell – a membership that maybe their golf course is good above the surface but failing below the surface? No, I, I think it's pretty easy. Uh-huh. In fact, I think it's a lot easier than coming in and telling them you think you, you could do a better job on the design of the facility because they don't necessarily they don't have to believe you on that, right? I mean, it's, it's with, with the infrastructure, it can tend to it can get more black and white. And I think the life cycle chart that the ASGCA put out a while ago has been a great tool. But I'll tell you what, since since the uh, recession hit us all, and it all hit all of us hard, I, I, I give some talks in, in the area, and I, and I kind of focus on this, that we've had to be smarter about the way we approach some things and pretty much prove to people that want to invest money in the game and their facilities that there's a reason to do these things. And a lot of times we need to provide more data. And I believe a lot of my peers, myself, we've been doing that. And the infrastructure is a good place to start when you start talking to these golf courses and clubs about the need to reinvest in their facility because you can map out some pretty logical things that they can understand and see in a data form, whether it's just identifying the age of their infrastructure and showing what the typical life cycles are of those are. I, I found ways to pull that, up, that stuff into um, spreadsheets and bar graphs and things like that that they can understand that they can put their head, their head around, their hands on, actually. A lot of these people are successful business people, so they appreciate when they see things like that. And it's been a big help to help them feel confident that it's worth and it's necessary to put the money back into their facilities. And I think that's a better place to start these days from a going in and rec- recommending things that need to be done on their golf course. So you started your firm in 1996, and you were pretty young when you did that. What type of yeah. risk was that? And how has that risk paid off for you? 
probably too young and maybe naive about it. And that it was probably a good thing because I didn't realize uh, at that time uh, the risk I was probably taking because I was young and naive, I guess. I don't know. Um, you know, I, I've been around the golf business for a long time since my, my father's a golf course superintendent. So I, I felt like I had a little more wisdom behind me at that, at that point, probably in my career than, than maybe others might feel at that point, just because I've been around golf so long. But, you know, it, it, I, it, was a, it was an interesting time. You know, the market was good. Um, it just made sense for me. Keith, I was working for Keith Foster at the time, and he had transitioned the office back east. I think they were in St. Louis at the time, eventually Kentucky. But um, So he had picked up everybody else uh, about three or four years earlier and moved out to St. Louis, and I stayed back behind and, and managed our Western projects for the, that period of time. And then at one point he came to me and said, you know, I'm, I'm thinking I don't want to do much more out west just because of the travel. Uh, why don't you come out, you know, why don't you make the move out to St. Louis and join the rest of the team? And I said, I'm really not interested in that. I got family out here and, and, and I'm not, you know, I'm a West Coast guy. I don't think that makes a lot of sense for me. And he basically said, that's a good answer. I think, David, you're probably ready to just go do your own thing. So I just sat on that course and it worked out for the best. But I, I think it's been a good, a, a good way to go about it. Uh, there's always got to be some point where you're comfortable making that break, and it worked out really good for me, as far as I can tell. How old were you at the time? Let's see, that was 96, so um, I was born in 66. Was I 30? Wow. I mean, that's that's really young, especially in the profession that you're in. What's day one like? What 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 is it like when you're, you're 30 years old and starting your, your own business in the, in the golf industry? Well, no doubt, right? I mean, I was like, okay, where do I get to work? I mean, that, that's that's the one big thing that I think um, people understand about, misunderstand about our industry is getting the work is, is probably the most difficult thing. I think actually doing the work is, is one thing, but finding the work has is, is got to be the most difficult challenge. And when you don't have a, a tour player, you know, marketable name or something like that attached to you or, or you're a second, third generation famous you know, uh, architect name or something like that. It, it can be difficult, but I think you just got to roll up your sleeves and, and get after it and prove yourself and, and do good work when you do get it. And you just have to slowly build your book, um, make a name for yourself, prove yourself. And um, I, I think things will eventually come. And we all got in this business basically because we're super passionate about what we do. Um, I, I think it's people don't realize the work that goes into it. Um, it's funny, right? I mean, I think most of my peers would say when we get on an airplane, invariably you get in that conversation with the person sitting next to you, oh, what do you do for a living? And when you tell them, oh, I design golf courses, they instantly always say, oh, my gosh, that's like one of the dream jobs, isn't it? You have to say, yeah, there's a lot of great things, a lot of great people, a lot of great locations you go, but you still got to do the work, right? And I'm, I'm back at my office paying bills and, and worrying about the website and doing all those kind of things. So it was a, it was a big step, but um, at some point you got to do it. So why not young? And when you're, you have a lot of uh, energy, what do you do? Do you start cold calling people, you know, do you start working connections? How do you get that work in such a competitive field? Yeah. Connections is a big thing. Back when I first started with Keith, there was a lot of cold calling. Remember this is pre-internet and, and things have changed drastically in this regard. And it's interesting to kind of step back and look at how things change after the recession too. I think a lot of the firms, uh, of course, scaled back during that time. And guys learn not to have to worry about having a, a big office. 
there's still a few out there, but we've all kind of regionalized ourselves. But back then, it was easy to stay in your region uh, because there wasn't the Internet sharing all the information about potential projects out there. You didn't have to worry about the guy back east tracking down the work you were tracking down because they had to they had to invest quite a bit of time and effort to even hear about things, let's say, in, in the southwest at that time. So it was a, the, the pool of, of competition might have been a little smaller depending on the project, but you basically just had to have your contacts and, and be after that list of people that are the movers and shakers in any industry. And, and I tell you what, it, it's interesting because – We've got a lot of, of, of associated businesses in the golf business, whether it's, like I said, the gentleman here that's an irrigation consultant or uh, guys that sell um, uh, distributors and things like that. Golf course projects are known uh, by the time that they need to get involved. We golf course architects, our biggest challenge is hearing about these projects before everybody else does. And a lot of times you never hear about something and then you find out it's going on. They've already, you know, assigned another architect. So that can be the biggest part of it is just getting on top of these things in a timely manner. And the Internet has kind of changed all that, whether it's good or bad or indifferent. It's fun to hear about all the things going on. But at the same time, you almost want things to kind of be a little hush-hush until you, you know, you've got that great project, you know, landing for yourself. So you did this in 1996. Would it even be possible for a 30-year-old in 2000? 19 to, to start their own golf course architecture firm? I don't know. Maybe. I think it depends on the background, what they've been doing up to that point. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of great talent out there. I'm seeing a lot of wonderful things being done um, in, in the marketplace all over the place. Some of it, you know, a fair amount of it's up this way. There's some great projects going on, um, you know, by some, some talented people. And social media gives you that opportunity to get the word out. Um, but I, I will say, even when I one of the things Keith used to tell Art Choppet and I, Art and I worked for, for Keith together, and we became good friends, but Keith was always telling us, guys, it's really hard in this business until you're probably 40 to just get the respect that you need to be facing some of these people in, in some of these committee meetings at these high-power country clubs. You know, it, 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 it's definitely an environment you've got to be ready for. And, again, I think my, my background with my dad being a superintendent, having me having grown up, I mean, I used to run around, you know, these private country clubs on Mondays when the golf course was closed. It was my own personal little playground, playing golf, hanging out at the clubhouse. And I understood the dynamics of these facilities. And it made it really good for me because I was able to just walk into these things, whether it's now or even back then, and I was instantly comfortable. And maybe that helped a little bit. I'm not too sure. But I think you have to just be able to um, – relate to these type of uh, facilities and the people that are involved with them. And, yes, that does take some time. At age 30, I don't know. It'd be hard to say. It depends on the individual, right? Yeah, you mentioned your father, George Drzyski, longtime golf course superintendent out west. Is that what stoked your passion in golf, or was it even beyond having a father that worked on a golf course? Good question. I, I, I think so. Um, the fact that he was there and, and around this and introduced me to it is probably the the primary reason I'm in it, um, you know, I, I probably had a little more of a creative gene probably given to me by my mom's side. Um, so I, I probably just wanted to combine something creative with what I was around in my youth. You know, I went to school with a small music scholarship initially, knowing I was going to do landscape architecture and, and, and lean towards golf, but I wasn't fixated on it at that point. And it just evolved into to making a lot of sense. You know, again, creativity plus the golf, golf course architecture made a lot of sense for me. And, of course, being in Phoenix didn't hurt. 
Did you ever work on one of your dad's crews? Oh, yeah, all the time. Either it's him or some of his buddies um, that were superintendents in the area. You know, I was going to school down in Tucson, and uh, he, he was up in Phoenix, so it was pretty easy for me to get a hold of, or he would, of course, uh, his, his friends that were superintendents, and they said, hey, I could use some hours on the weekend, and it was pretty easy for them to feel confident. I could easily just jump on a mower and, and, and you know, take care of things and, you know, on the weekends or something like that, or when they were uh, short guys. I mean, I remember doing some painting of fairways with the dyes they used to use at Tucson National for Greg Graham back in the day. So there, there was a lot of a lot of times I was suited for that, and it just made sense to wait, wait for a college kid to make a little side money. Yeah. How much did you learn by doing that? I mean, looking back on it, how, how has that helped you now in your in your profession and what you do now? That that time being around golf course maintenance. Oh, it's, it's, it's huge, right? I mean, it's, it's it's kind of funny. We we architects blow in, the golf course contractors blow in. We do our thing, whether it's nine months, twelve months, eighteen months, three months for these projects, and then we turn around and leave. And golf course superintendents are left with whatever we did. And it's I think it's really important that we understand what we're putting together for these properties and what's going to have to be done when we leave. And uh, out of respect for, for that professional side of, the, of, that, of our industry, which is, which is fantastic, um, you know, what I, ever I picked up from my dad and working on the golf course has gone, gone into that tremendously. I mean, it's, it's, it's you know, mother, mother Nature, I, I say this a lot of times, to, I try to get this point across, especially to committees, at country clubs is, you know, Mother Nature, she's going to win. Um, and that's what we're trying to do. We're, we're trying to manipulate what Mother Nature otherwise would, would be providing. And that's a big challenge at times. And we have to be really careful about how far we push that. And these golf course superintendents, um, they've got a tough job on their hands a lot of times. And we need to do whatever we need to do to make that as simple as possible. You know, these, the new bucker liners that have been introduced into the industry the last you know, decade or so, so has been is an example of things, the tools that we've figured out make a lot of sense to help their job be a little easier and spend a little less money in the long run. I mean, there's a lot of things when you understand what goes into maintaining golf courses goes into what I do every day. And then you combine that with, you know, the other part of my background was construction. I worked construction on numerous golf courses uh, during college, after college, and between the, the maintenance um, background that I brought to it and and, and learning how to build these things, um, that's really important, I think, for what we do. And, and maybe my age of 30 at the time, you know, I already had those things under my belt as well. That helps probably quite a bit. Yeah, the, the, the weather is always going to be undefeated, right? But what are some things that a golf course architect can do to mitigate the effect weather can have on a golf course besides what you just mentioned, the some of the newer bunker liners? Yeah, I, I think we need to understand um, – it goes all the way from, from irrigation systems to grass types to, okay, how many bunkers, what type of bunkers. You know, there's a lot of little things that all add up, and I think it's, it, 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 you can't push too far in one, any, in one area. I mean, we all love to do ornate, really crazy, cool, wicked, good, fantastic bunkers, but you have to be really careful with that, with, with sun angles and wind angles, and, uh, I mean, wind, wind velocities and directions and things like that. So, a lot of that stuff, it, it's it's really difficult to get a full grasp of, but that's one thing good about being on a piece of a property during construction. You've got to watch for those things as well uh, as you go. But, um, you know, I, I think it's it's really important that we, we continue to find ways to make things more logical 
you know, I, I think we got away from ourselves, of course, when when things were out of control in the 80s and 90s, 2000, with what we were doing on a lot of golf courses. Not everything, but but you know, some sometimes we need to be really really simple with some things and find other ways to provide the fun instead of tricking it up with bells and whistles and bunkers and, and things like that. Uh, speaking of simple, you've worked on some sites that have amazing views. I'm going to sound like I work for the Idaho Department of Tourism right now. Uh, I mean, the, the views in your part of the country are really unlike maybe any in the country. What do you do as a golf course architect to amplify those mountain views and sunrises and sunsets you get? Yeah, just let it happen, right? I mean, don't mess it up. Um, we architects say that a lot, but uh, when when Mother Nature and God above has given you a piece of property and, and blessed all the things that uh, – um, could be, you know, lending itself to being something special. So you just got to let it happen and find ways to maybe take full advantage of that. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 I've had the blessed, I've been blessed to work on numerous sites, uh, whether it's here or, or elsewhere. But yeah, I mean, the, the east side of the state, working over in the Teton Valley with the Teton Mountains towering over you, nothing wrong with that. So um, it's 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 wonderful to be up here and, and, and take its full advantage of that. And like I said before, you you can do pretty much anything you want with grass types, as long as your soils are good, the water situation is good up here. Um, it's just a, it really is a pretty place. Yeah. Do you have any specific instances running through your head where you were just out there and you're like, dang, I'm out here. This view's incredible, and I'm I'm getting to do this job I've always wanted to do. Anything stick out in your head of those type of uh... Tiffany's? Yeah. <laughs> Of course. I, mean, I, think, I think all of us architects have had those that we remember the rest of our lives, whether it was, I think one of mine was actually when I was working construction, uh, I was building a golf course on the Pacific Ocean, right? And how many great sunsets. I, I would just stay late to, to put finishing touches on, the, on, on floating out greens cause until 6, 7 o'clock at night when nobody else was around just to be on the property overlooking the ocean. But I think uh, one of the most dramatic places I was was I, I did a project um, down in, in Laughlin, uh, Nevada, right on the Arizona-Nevada border called Laughlin Ranch. And, in fact, I think it won the, the Best Built Golf Course um, Award thing for Golf Course News this time. But um, it was just an unbelievable piece of property overlooking the Colorado River. The, the, the stark contrast between that very, very harsh environment with what we were doing was just spectacular. And the play of light and and on the rocks and the mountains that you know bordered the property was just unbelievable. All of us like to stay late just because it was so beautiful. What are the emotions like ending that project? Some of these places are pretty remote and hard to get get to. Are you wondering how often I'm going to get back to some of these places? And oh, yeah, all the time. I mean, it's some of them I haven't been back to for a while because it's just just enough off the beaten path. I mean, that's that's an unfortunate unfortunate part of today is that we're always in such a hurry, and even even a two-hour, you know, diversion sometimes is a little too much um, to take to, to go see some of these things. But you try. You know, the biggest one, of course, is I did some work down in Brazil, and I lived in back down there the one time to the golf course. So it can be difficult. I think a lot of us would probably say the same thing. It would surprise us if we stand back and reflect. Um, we don't always get to get back to these locations, and maybe sometimes we didn't take full advantage of them while we were there. Um and kind of regret that, but we are very fortunate to, to be able to do the travel we do and, and work in some of these locations. What was Brazil like? It was, it was a lot of fun. The people down there are so passionate about everything. So it was a, it was a joy 
it was a pretty interesting project. I mean, the, we, we heard a lot about um, Brazil and golf, of course, for the Olympics and what Gil did down there. Um, you know, and I had similar – it was pretty funny when the last minute they, they were really concerned about the golf course being done and all those kind of things. I was just kind of smiling and laughing because I knew exactly what they were going through. Um, there's some challenges, you know, associated with politics and, and all that stuff down there that, that everything goes through that we don't understand in other parts of the, of the, of the world. We have it pretty easy up here. But it, it, was, it was a neat project. It was a golf course for an individual. He was doing a, a major restoration of an old 150, 175-year-old coffee plantation uh, that he wanted to put a golf course on it. And, and uh, it was a lot of fun, you know, doing that travel and seeing a different part of the world. Had its challenges. I had to do things I didn't typically do. I had to help them uh, put together a, a list of things they would need to operate and manage the golf course. Uh, they only wanted to have a couple big shipping containers one time come into the country with things like ball washers and benches and flags and things like that. So we had to work on things that maybe we wouldn't otherwise do. So it's not all soothing sunsets and picturesque peaks. Being a golf course architect is very challenging. What are some things that people who aren't involved in the profession don't understand about the work you do on a daily basis? Working with the diverse range of personalities and clients and customers, working within the framework of, of committees, and when you've got, let's say at a, at a private country club, let's say we're working at, and you basically got four or 500 owners, and you have to keep that in mind throughout the whole process, that can be challenging. And the communication is completely different than when you're working with, with maybe one individual. But I, I would say that convincing people of what, what you want to do sometimes is, is much more challenging than we hope because we believe in what we want to do, but not everybody else does until you either prove it to them or show it to them or, or, or whatever. So that, that, that can be challenging at times. It's a lot of fun. I mean, I enjoy the process, but it, it can be tough. And when, when you have to work your way through those kind of challenges, it, 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 it's, it's, there's a lot of nights you wake up in the middle of the night concerned about, some, some things you might need to work on or, or ways to convey your ideas differently to some of these groups to, to help them understand the direction you might want to go with something. David, how closely do you work with the superintendent? And what are some things that an architect looks for in a superintendent that help the job along? Right. Yeah, I, I get pretty close to a lot of the guys and gals that I've worked with. Um, it, it makes sense, all right? I mean, I've got total respect for what they do, having come up to son of a golf course uh, uh, superintendent. So um, I understand the importance of what they bring to the table, and they, they need to they, they, they need to understand uh, the process. And I, I try to help them as best they can. It's just an, it's it's a completely different dynamic. If you're going in a project where a superintendent has never done a project, you kind of have to to hold their hand a little bit through it in a good way, so that they understand how the dynamics are completely different. When you go from a maintenance routine, it's just in the word, right, with golf course maintenance, um, it's a different mentality you have to get. And sometimes maybe the superintendent himself does, but maybe the crew doesn't. And you have to be on the lookout for some of those things. But they need to understand that, no, we can't wait for this thing because we're only working until 2 or 3 o'clock today. You know, we're, we're laying sod until 4 o'clock, so we better be ready to have somebody out there with hoses to make sure this, uh, you know, the sod is not going to go crispy on us. And there's just a lot of little things that eventually the guys will get it if they've never done it before, but they also embrace it. It's great to see how much they enjoy the process, usually, um, in, in these 
efforts. What's your relationship like with other architects? You're, you're kind of on an island, like you said. Do you, do you get to see other people in the business a lot? Do you get to talk to any others? Or, or are you pretty much doing your own thing the whole time? Uh, it's a combination of the two. Uh, I, I, I keep in touch with a few guys uh, quite a bit, and it's it's fun. I mean, you, you've been to some of the meetings, I believe. You know, with, with when we, a lot of us get together, and it's it's a great camaraderie, and we all kind of let down our, our 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 blinders and stuff when we get together, and we just have a good time. And a lot of us know each other. The old tree of who's worked for who and when, and and they used to work for them. You know, kind of thing. And and so I, I keep in touch with the guys that I've. I've worked with before. Art Schopeter and I are really good friends. We talk to each other a lot. We're kind of a similar situation. We both are by ourselves. We work out of our houses, don't have a staff. Um, so a lot of times I might be working on something early in the morning, and I'll give him a call. He answers the phone, and we'll talk about something from a design standpoint together for an hour or two. So it's kind of neat in that regard, and um, it's great that we're able to do that. Um, but but no doubt I am, I'm definitely kind of out here and, and – and um, by myself, which at the same time is also a great thing. You know, I've turned to other areas of, of study of design. It's not just all, it, you know, maybe when I was younger, at that 30-year age, I was way into studying all the old great architects and seeing their work as best I could. You know, West Coast guy, went up and down the coast, seeing all the McKenzie stuff, and especially Thomas. You know, up here you got McCann a little bit. and um, so, so, you know, I studied all that kind of stuff in, in the past, but then here in the recent years I've turned more towards other design disciplines, whether it's architects or just designers in general, just to kind of get a better feel for the bigger picture of architecture and design to, to maybe get some more inspiration of design in general and grow, go to a bigger picture frame of mind on some of this stuff. So I think like many of us, you just evolve and, and sometimes it's golf, or golf course architects you get inspiration from and sometimes it's just other designers, period. Yeah, very few of the golden age architects worked in the environment where you're living, right? So who, who do you study when when you're you're trying to learn more about mountain golf and using views and, and the, the high desert and the part of the country that you're in? Yeah, there, there really wasn't. I mean, there's, there's not a lot of great classic. In fact, there's none. There's, there's, there's very little in the way of classical golf courses in this area. You know, we, you, we always hear about the great restoration jobs that, that some of the architecture are, are responsible for out there, and it's, it's really great to read about those. There's not much of that. You know, West Coast doesn't have as much nearly as other parts of the country in general. And it's never been a big part of the business for the guys out West. But I, I would say that, um, you know, it, 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 there's opportunity now to create that, right? I mean, we've got a great environment for it. There's no reason we can't create some classics. And I think there are some. I mean, look at Banna Dunes and, and uh, David McClay-Kid did that great projects over, over in Washington. I mean, there's some, some wonderful opportunity there to maybe create some of that for the future. But, yeah, there's not a lot of classic-rich history uh, to golf courses per se out here a little bit maybe in Seattle and uh, but that's about it so you, you have to look for other inspiration other 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 aspects you know I, I think there's more work involved for for guys like me where you, you take an existing facility meet with good bones a good routing uh, good intentions and, and a good clientele and take that golf course to the next level uh, with what we've learned from studying those great golf courses and that's a big part of the business. Yeah, there's a lot of gushing and a lot of romanticizing over the the golden age courses, and sometimes what was built in the last 25 to 30 years gets overlooked. How, how good is some of the stuff that you've seen in the places that that you've worked? Yeah, you're, you're right. I mean, we we do hear a lot about that because it's 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 easy to get uh, excited about those things, um, but but I think the challenge is much more different when again when you 
when you go into something that doesn't have something already that, and you need to create something. And there's been some really, really good stuff um, done, especially in the Northwest. Like I said before, there really wasn't a lot of new work uh, done by the national architects until I would say the, the mid nineties and things took a, you know, a big change at about that time. There's been a lot of really good golf courses built in the Northwest. And of course, Bannon leads the way on that. And, and some similar facilities. So there's some wonderful golf up in the Northwest now, and I'm, I'm really lucky to be, to be part of it. In your mind, what do you think the golf course of the future in your part of the country is going to look like, and how do you think it's going to play and feel? Yeah, it's probably no different than what you're hearing from other architects around the country, around the world. I mean, we have to, get, we have to go back a little bit, I think, and, and simplify some things. Land costs, water costs, just resource use. We have to be uh, smaller uh, more practical about some things. It's going to be interesting because I think we, 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 we're going to have to get creative with our approach and a lot of these things, which I've always taken that approach in, in my architecture is find ways to create memorability, uh, fun dynamics, uh, make sure golfers have a lot of fun playing your golf course, but at the same time keeping it simple. And there's ways to do that. Uh, it's just can challenge you. It can be more challenging at times. And, and that's what we're going to have to find. I think shorter golf courses, I've, I've, I mean, there's some wonderful shorter golf courses that um, aren't any of a lesser challenge or lesser interest than the longer championship, whatever that's called, whatever that is, 2000, you know, 7,200 yards. Um, that's not everyday golfer. We don't need to be worried about championship golf. Let's just make good, fun, dynamic golf courses so that people will enjoy the game and stay with it. And that just makes more sense for for all the other things too, the money, resource use, um, and be more practical about these things. And I think it all come around. It doesn't have to be uh, all about the, the par eight, par seventy two, seven thousand yard uh, deal anymore. I think we can get more creative and do some different types of venues and facilities, and and that's where the game has got to go, I believe, to stay valid in the future. David, you've been in the industry pretty much your your entire life. And you're still fairly young for a golf course architect. What are the next 10 to 15 likes, 10 to 15 years going to be like for you? What do you foresee your, your future being in the industry? Yeah, gosh, I wish I had the crystal ball. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I worry probably like a lot of us that we're going to hit another big bump in the road where, where money is going to have to be spent elsewhere instead of places like golf. Um, but I think the, the future might be bright in what we just talked about in regards to maybe we just start making some big changes to facilities and to the game. You know, the repurposing that we're seeing of facilities around the world. We finally have one. Uh, we had one short course here, unfortunately, get plowed under for houses uh, because this town is crazy with development right now. But we have another one that's going to get repurposed. The developer came in and he's going to pull some land out that's expensive along a major road and develop that and put some money back on the golf course. So I think that's um, probably for the future, whether it's here or elsewhere. Uh, for me, uh, I'm a creative guy. I think about things from a global standpoint in terms of a bigger picture with facilities from a planning standpoint. And I think I can come up with some, some different ways to approach um, what we can do and provide for the game of golf and not necessarily work around the standard quota. Uh, of yardage and, and, and stop crunching numbers so much. I think in this game we're too, we've been too fixated on, on worrying about things like par and yardage and handicaps and 
making sure we conform to all those aspects. And I think, frankly, a very, very high percentage of people who play the game just go out and beat the ball around have a good time. And that's the group we need to kind of cater to these days. Well, David, this was a lot of fun. I don't know when I'll get to speak to another golf course architect from Idaho. So I really enjoyed this. Uh, Thanks a lot for taking the time. And thanks a lot for doing great work for your clients and helping the industry and your part of the country. You bet. It's been a blast talking to you. And make your way out. Come on out, and we'll, we'll take a tour around of our beautiful part of the part of this uh, great country of ours.